0: Hello again, Detectives! Co-showrunner Lauren here. We are hoping to have some very exciting season two news for you soon. But in the meantime, we wanted to share with you a little something different. We recently recorded an interview with the Baker Street Regulars podcast. They are a weekly deep dive into adaptations of Sherlock Holmes stories through a queer lens. They cover everything from the Jeremy Brett Granada series, a personal favorite of mine, the Frogwares game series, BBC Sherlock, plays like Chris Walsh's Miss Holmes, and even things like Veggie Tales and Sherlock Gnomes. We are so excited to share with you our interview with Ian and Evan, where we talk about Fox and Stallion and adaptation for audio, writing mysteries, and a little bit about season two. If you enjoy this interview, please go check out Baker Street Regulars and their amazing back catalog of content. Full disclosure, I will be joining them again very shortly for their BBC Sherlock episode, so stay tuned for that. And for now, enjoy a sneak peek at Baker Street Regulars with me and Ian on the other side.
1: Hi, my name is Evan, and I use he, him pronouns. And my name is Ian, and I use they, them pronouns. And we are the The Baker Baker Street Street Regulars. Regulars, a podcast where we are taking a queer magnifying glass to the Sherlock Holmes canon and its many adaptations.
3: Hi, Lauren and Ian. Welcome to Baker Street Regulars. Can you say a bit about yourselves?
2: My name is Ian. My pronouns are he, him. I am an actor and writer, director that is based in Chicago, and I'm a huge, big old stupid fan of Sherlock Holmes.
0: And you also have a show.
2: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Right off the bat. (laughs) I'm the co-writer, co-director, co-creator of this show called Fox and Stallion, which I'm very excited to talk about today.
0: And I'm Lauren Grace Thompson, she, her, hers. And I'm also based in Chicago, actor, writer, producer. And then I'm also the co-everything on the audio drama Fox and Stallion.
3: That's
1: incredible. So we have two Ians on this podcast, and we have to fight now. We do. Legally,
2: there can only be one,
1: so.
0: Yes.
2: Yeah. That was just, that
0: was in the contract you sent
2: over. Yes. I yeah. wasn't sure if there would be a loophole because you're in a different state, like, so <laughs> that we can both exist in our territories, but. No, the helicopter's coming now. <laughs> All right. It's cool. I'll get out my samurai sword.
3: <laughs> Before we get into the podcast you guys created, can you talk a little bit about your history with Sherlock? You're both fans. What are, like, favorite and least favorite versions of the Sherlock Holmes stories?
0: Well, I grew up on the original stories. My mom, I'm an only child, my mom's only child. And we had this tradition before we go to bed that she would read me like a chapter or a short story of something. Started off with like Nancy Drew stories. I really loved mysteries. And then as I started to get a little bit older, my mom would read me Sherlock Holmes before bedtime. So I have like very early memories of specifically the Speckled Band story in the original. Like it was a very formative memory. So I love the original stories. And then my mom also really loved the Granada Holmes series with Jeremy Brett. So I also have a lot of memories of that really fond memory, specifically the early ones with with David Burke as Watson. We rewatched The Blue Carbuncle every year on Christmas I love those. And then I just sort of, I fell in love with BBC Sherlock. There's kind of just like a different Holmes adaptation for every segment of my life that I can weirdly mark my life by, which is part of the reason why I I love continuing to come back to this world and to these characters. And so it kind of, when Ian and I were talking about making a show, this is a world that I was really interested in and and love playing in.
2: Yeah, I started reading the stories early in like, I guess like elementary school because there was like one of those things where the teacher, I don't know if you guys had like the the reading scores, so it's like you would take like a test and it would tell you like you read it like a seventh grade level or you read it like yes. a this grade level or whatever. Mm-hmm. Not to brag, but I had a pretty high <laughs> reading level when I was ten years old. I could read like a thirteen year old, and they they told me <laughs> they we're like Ian You're gonna things want some chapter books. Yeah, Ian things right here. Boom. See, we don't need to fight. We um, don't need to fight. <laughs> we're fine. Uh, But my teacher actually pointed me in the direction of Doyle and and of Sherlock Holmes. So I got really into those. And I didn't really revisit it or think much about it until the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes came out in 2008, the Guy Ritchie version. And a lot of that was because I was a huge Robert Downey Jr. fan. So I was really excited for those movies. And it kind of reignited, for as silly as those movies are, really reignited. passion for the stories again but then i honestly did not touch a lot of them until like in full till we started working on fox and stallion and that's when i knew i like i I was going to need to reacquaint myself with quite a few of those stories so some of that was just through reading wikipedia summaries and some of that was through rereading some of the stories my most favorite adaptation of sherlock holmes I think I would have to go with with Lauren's as well. The Granada Holmes is is pretty elite.
0: I got you into uh, those, which I was very proud of.
2: Yeah, I for some reason I'd never seen them until Lauren introduced me to them, and I, I just find it's like a warm fireplace fire on a cold night. Those those episodes. Mm-hmm. And least favorite, I'm gonna go Sherlock Gnomes. You know, I... did they
0: ask for least least favorite? We, was that we a did, yeah. We did. Okay. Yeah. We, oh no, I didn't. Oh, least. I'm oh, good. i good. Look at me already screwing up the assignment.
2: it's no. <laughs> because Lauren loves those names.
0: No, I was <laughs> such a perfectionist kid. No, I'm kicking myself. Least favorite. I would say like so at one point in my life, Sherlock BBC has been my favorite and also my least favorite at various points in my life.
2: I feel you. That's a true statement. It's,
0: it's true. I feel like most BBC statement. Sherlock fans feel that way.
3: Yeah, I, I very much <laughs> yeah. feel that.
1: Maybe even some non nemesis, you know?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: it's totally fair
2: has been my best friend and my enemy at various points (laughs) in my life like a real lover like a real lover it's it's a fascinating
0: thing that stephen moffat does that like that just various projects do it at different speeds where it's like oh my god this is so exciting this is so cool and then speed runs its way through to the worst thing you've ever seen in your life (laughs) it's it's almost admirable it is genuinely almost admirable Only Um, Only it's it's a special skill and you know what i should recognize it as a skill more often (laughs)
2: <laughs> the amount of running jokes that Lauren and I have about Stephen Moffat in our in our house. And, and it's with great admiration a lot of the time. And then some of the times it's just with pure and abject confusion
3: <laughs> and horror. So you both have a Sherlock Holmes podcast called Fox and Stallion set in the Homes of Earth. Can you describe mm-hmm. what that podcast is?
0: Ian, do you want to take this one?
2: Sure, sure. Yeah. So the podcast is about Sherlock and Watson's neighbors that are across the street and a little to the left and they live at 224B Baker Street and it's Hampton Fox and his best friend James Stallion and his other best friend Madge Stallion. Madge and James are married and it's about essentially the three of them trying to break into the detective business, the consulting detective business, but they're having a really difficult time because those assholes across the street keep stealing all of the good cases.
0: Season one is a singular mystery. So it's one extended mystery that takes place on the weekend that Holmes and Watson are away solving the case that will be the Hound of the Baskervilles. So they're out of town for the weekend. A woman in need comes to Holmes and Watson's apartment, which they have through shenanigans broken into. And they have a long weekend, essentially, to solve this case before Holmes and Watson get back to establish their name on the detective scene. This incredibly niche uh, industry of detectives in London in the in the 1880s. So it's, a, it's an underdog story. It's a comedy mystery. It goes into farce at sometimes. Uh, that exists in the Holmes and Watson world sort of tangentially for season one.
3: It's sort of the life of Brian of detective mm-hmm. stories. It's like anybody could be the detective. We don't know. This person, yeah, could be. yeah, very
2: very, very good
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's like a it's a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and a Waiting for Godot. Like you yeah. know, oh, all that, of these highbrow things that we are decidedly not. <laughs> but but as the figure himself, Sherlock Holmes and John Watson are mostly off-screen for the entirety of season one, though they are talked about mm-hmm. quite a bit. As people you are rivals with and vaguely obsessed with can tend to take over your conversations and your life yeah. <laughs> can yeah. tend
3: to be. One thing that I want to ask about is mm-hmm. the degree of intentionality that it feels like you've added a lot more women and queer people into mm-hmm. stories that are really not always straight, but very masculine focused and very... I like that, not always straight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's something going on there, but it's, it's never very clear. Mm-hmm.
1: They're not telling us.
3: <laughs> so, yeah. so what was the thought about approaching the storytelling challenge of adapting a medium that mm-hmm. is so not diverse uh, for an audience in 2022 and 2023.
0: So a lot of it was part of the reason that we, we ended up like kind of jokingly pitching this to each other was we were talking about a lot of modern adaptations of IP and how we were wrestling with as creators, how much the, the landscape of like creation for all different types of medium has become so IP focused and has been so kind of soulless to us. And especially with big corporations, has been so many of us that exist on like in marginalized spaces or marginalized identities, are having trouble seeing ourselves represented in those and and kind of waiting for that to to happen. And So much of this came from our frustration with like, why does everything have to be tied to an IP? Why can't we do anything original? So we were trying to challenge ourselves to find something original within an IP that we felt that we felt passionate about and that we could find the soul of. And sort of tangentially, that came to creating a story about the characters that have existed on the fringes of this world that have always been there and always been living like potentially comedic, joyful, adventurous lives, but that have not potentially had the chance to take the center stage themselves. And that it is a story, I think this is, it doesn't spoil anything, that feels like the heart of it is about those characters realizing that they do not have to take the paths of what has come before and the people that have come before and the met- the methods of success that have come before and have to find their own path and establish their own identities and existence in the world on their own terms. That it felt like all of the... like. The identities that existed within that just felt like they were so crucial to that particular story we wanted to tell, and there was really no other way to tell that particular story.
2: Very eloquently put, and I'm just kind of sprinkle a little bit of, of, I guess, condiment sauce on the side of that full dish that Lauren just gave. <laughs> uh, I think something that that we realized in uh, our first audio drama that we did as well was that, like an entire sw- as as you know, is the case in the world. An entire swath of humanity exists in the world and in every story and for some reason when we've only been given this kind of one sliver of this universe and it's been discussed not only in a gender binary but in a a sexuality binary and in a, a storytelling binary of like and this is how it goes and good defeats evil and this is this is this that actually in just inviting all of the different shades of humanity into it, we could hopefully have more, a, a wider swath of types of story to tell. Mm-hmm. And so it was expanding the playground by inviting more more types of characters and more types of experiences into it that we were really excited about. And like Lauren said, so much of it was about like giving, not giving voice to the voiceless because they obviously have voices, but just wanting to make a show that we felt that we recognized the world of.
0: You've said this in the past. It's about shifting focus onto them, not giving yeah. them voice, but showing that like the focus has always been here. The camera has always been here. These yeah. stories have always been happening over here. We just haven't been putting the camera on them. Ironic because yeah. it's an audio medium. But I think you, you explained that really well in the past that I just wanted to.
2: Oh, thank You're you. I sounded very smart back then. That's very, that's, a good, <laughs> that's a good one. All I was gonna say to finish it off was just that there was a large intentionality to it and there was a large responsibility to be respectful and and obviously to be positively representing the groups that we have in in the show. But also we love seeing stories about other other folks. And we just were also a little frustrated that every single time that we see that, especially in a period piece, so much of the focus becomes on. What society either others them as, or what mm-hmm. they other themselves as, and we wanted them to be able to have a story and have a fun adventure and not be held up by, you know, by how backward society was at the time.
0: But yeah, that the story is not about oppression. That it's like, yeah. those characters did have have happiness. They did have joy. They had adventures that had nothing to do with those parts of themselves, and and those are are fun too.
2: So that was a big that was a big thing for us. There was never an iteration of this story where that element was not a part of it. A lot changed from that initial pitch, but I feel like that the centering of those characters and having that element to this world was always a, something that was exciting to us about it because it was a way into seeing this world in a way that we had never seen before and in a way that we wanted to see it.
0: And also just setting a foundation for, I think, you know the next iteration of our journey, which is a little more tied to that particular IP and those particular... Stories and those characters and, and the Sherlock Holmes and John Watson of it all, which is also something that we're very, very excited about going into season two.
3: Yeah, you implied yeah. on Tumblr that, that you were intentionally waiting for Sherlock Holmes to enter the public domain, which was <laughs> not for the bulk of your first season. <laughs> In that which... time
0: we accidentally caused Sherlock Holmes to trend on Tumblr in 2022, <laughs> hilarious times. <laughs> yeah, that was part of it. I think that we had we had multiple reasons for kind of very intentionally waiting to introduce those characters. One was genuinely the copyright thing. We wanted to to be able to tell that story in a world where there's no particular problems in telling those stories, and there's no none of that. Um, we also felt it was important to to like introduce our characters into the world and kind of establish them because so much of them are you and i've talked about this too like a lot of the relationships between our detectives are mirrors of different iterations of the holmes watson relationship and we have our main characters james stallion and hampton fox who are kind of the almost like parts of the guy Ritchie version who are a little bit more like male friendship very kind of almost broy. that are, are you know the ones that are getting in a boxing ring together and are forming a partnership that way. We have uh, Hampton Fox and Madge Stallion, who are kind of platonic soulmates. We have we have often referred to them as that it's this very deep, very this is like a genuinely a love story. We view those characters as, as a love story. They've been childhood friends. They they are partners in every sense of the way. And then we have James Stallion and his his romantic partner Archie Cartwright, who is when we meet him a member of Scotland Yard, who have been together for I think five years at that point. Who are in love. Who are settled down. Who are very domestic. And different versions of those those mirrors of the different possibilities for the Holmes-Watson relationship that have kind of existed in both canon and in fan communities and in what people want. And we felt it was important to establish all of those versions of the relationship before we bring in the actual characters and kind of examine what what they are and what they want to be. So we felt it was important to give that time. And also because I know that Ian and I had a lot of conversations about whether or not we were ever going to bring Holmes and Watson overtly into the show very early on. And we decided pretty quickly that we weren't going to do that unless we had a story to tell with them Mm -hmm. that we felt fit into our world and our mission with the story. Because we didn't, the last thing we wanted to do was to bring in Holmes and Watson and have them overshadow these characters that we have so lovingly created and put the focus on. Because the whole point of it is putting focus on people who have not been in the focus. And the last thing we want to do is bring in this character who suddenly takes over their story. So we wanted to have there there be a story where those two sets of characters can collide, coexist, and enlighten each other. Not just our characters learning from Sherlock Holmes, but perhaps Sherlock Holmes learning something from our characters so that they can still have the focus, they can still have the agency of their story, and it can still be their story while also adding to his
3: Right. Yeah, I think you did a good job of introducing Sherlock in a way where it doesn't suck the air out of the room where I was like, Okay, fine that he's yeah. here, but we'll get back to the people I care about. <laughs> um.
0: Yeah. Which is which thank goodness. Like that that's what we wanted. You know, hopefully <laughs> you like seeing a little bit more of this character, but hopefully it's not, oh, I only want to see this character. Yeah, um,
2: I feel like when the discussion came up, I was pretty vehemently against having them in the show at all at the top. You were, like, yeah. But a lot of that is is because it's like, these are such strong characters like Sherlock, Watson, Lestrade, Mycroft. All of them are such strong personalities that we not only have a literary relationship to, but we have several different media relationships too. We have several different interpretations that I feel like once you get into bringing in these legacy characters, the question is not about the what anymore. It's not about the who, it's about the how. And it's about the interpretation of it. And so I felt like if we brought it in too early, we would risk audiences being more interested in how we were writing Sherlock Holmes Hmm. as opposed to what Sherlock Holmes is even doing there and why he's there to begin with and why Watson's there. So we really, like Lauren said, wanted to, you know, kind of forge our own path in this universe and in this playground because it is big enough for so many different types of stories. And then we'll bring them in and kind of see how it's like, how how our interpretation of those characters fit into our world as opposed to how our characters fit into their world.
3: Back on the idea of Sherlock Holmes entering the public domain, I'm sort of surprised that there aren't a lot more Sherlock Holmes projects coming down the pipe right now. Right. When Gatsby mm-hmm. entered the public domain, there were like a thousand, you know, there's four stage productions and several new books, yeah. and, you know, and Sherlock Holmes that's is a, right. you know, a big, significant IP. And it's funny when I, when we were season planning, we were looking at when things come out. There's like, you know, there's mm-hmm. a bubble in the 80s and there's a bubble in the 2010s. And it seems like we're not in a Sherlock bubble right now. I feel like you guys are yeah. some of the only people who are playing with, there's one other podcast that I found also. that's mm-hmm. new. Sherlock is very
0: new, yeah. Yeah. yeah, which is a little different from ours is a modernized version of it. Yeah. Um, so much closer to the kind of BBC Sherlock era style. So there are two different versions of that going on, which I which I also love that right. in the podcasting realm, it seems like there's, there's an appetite for it. But you're right. There is a, a dearth of it in mm-hmm. kind of main media uh, outside of this like long promised third Guy Ritchie. Sherlock Holmes that they still say they're going to do. Give it to um, me.
2: Give me my skittles for dinner.
0: <laughs> and the third Enola Holmes, which I yeah. think is the main one that's kind of coming up. But other than that, I, don't, I you're right. There's not a lot. And I think maybe it's due to this perception that there was an oversaturation. Mm-hmm. It may be due to the perception that BBC Sherlock still looms kind of so heavily. But I think it may just be due to people being a little afraid of pulling that trigger because they feel that You know, the market has been oversaturated and there's not an appetite for it, Mm -hmm. which is fascinating because there is an appetite for it. Just you have to do something different. Like It's that thing where it's like, well, it's oversaturated in doing kind of a straightforward adaptation in two different versions of this story rather than finding kind of a new take on it, which is why the ones that have been successful are the like Enola Holmes, which is a similar like focus shift story, Mm -hmm. whereas Sherlock Holmes is there, but he is not the focus. But you're right. I think it is It is interesting that we have not had kind of a, a boom, which was what, what I was expecting, frankly.
2: Mm-mm. I feel like for as long as at least I've been alive, Sherlock and, and this universe has been on a slow simmer in the background of media. Like there, There's always been either uh, a Sherlock property to watch or engage with, or there's one coming out. And even now, it's like, you know, one is usually enough. It's like we, before the Guy Ritchie, Sherlock Holmes movies in 2008, there wasn't like a huge sherlock holmes boom then and then Mm -hmm. it's like we got that and we got the moffat sherlock holmes within like a year or two of that and then elementary came on american television and then sherlock gnomes and so also like
0: house md frankly which is also md
2: which is sherlock a sherlock holmes adaptation a great sherlock uh, adaptation but i feel like we just kind of passed a crest Mm -hmm. and so now we're kind of in a spot where really the only like lauren said the only kind of like Majorly distributed, kind of corporately backed Sherlock Holmes property that we're seeing is the Anola Averse. And ironically, if we want to really spoil this here, when we first jokingly pitched this to each <laughs> other, it was as part of the Anola Holmesiverse.
0: Yeah, it was a joke there, pitch that we came up with. We were like, "Oh, imagine that Sherlock Holmes takes all the cases, and he looks like that."
2: <laughs> yeah, we thought it was really funny. The, so the initial pitch when we, we were driving back from APT one summer, we were seeing a show, and we were just sometimes Lauren and I will just like try and play games and pass the time. The cars so will pitch each other things, or we'll be like, "What's the dumbest pitch you can come up with? Give me something that would never get pretty you know, like that.
0: Oh, because you're talking about all of these writers that were coming out with these stories of like, you go and you have a meeting with a studio, yeah, and you have like five original pitches that you're really excited Mm -hmm. about and you feel so passionate about and then they hand you a list of like well these are the properties we own can you pitch us something that's you know scrabble the movie and we were like so if that happened to us what would we do like this is the list of properties and i think that that's really where it came out of was like that was the prompt like if you have to come up with a pitch that is tied to an ip what is it yeah
2: it was exactly that and we were just like well if they exist in the in the Enola Holmes universe, and with Sherlock and Watson looking like that in that universe, it's like, okay, what makes a Netflix movie? How do we make this a Netflix movie? Initially it was just gonna be it was a one so like a, different. a feature. It was gonna be a feature script. And it was like, well, Netflix movies, they're two hours long. They're they look very handsome. They're like very well shot, very sleek. And the cast is kind of like unnaturally good looking for the type of story that they're telling. And they go in one ear and out the other. And at the end of the movie, you've kind of forgotten what you were watching. And it's like those those are the tenets of a Netflix film <laughs> like for the most part, in my opinion. And we're uh, like, how
0: can we do that, but then try to give it a soul?
2: yeah and as we were writing it I think like we we pitched it and we kind of jokingly came out with this whole thing in our original version it was like Dave Bautista was Watson or something like that it was so stupid (laughs) that was before
0: they Um, had cast their Watson in the Enola Holmes
2: and then we went home and I think like the next day I just kind of sat down and wrote the first 10 pages of what would be episode one and and not a lot of it changed from that initial kind of like writing frenzy and it was really just a way of being like is this a project we could actually get excited about writing? Mm -hmm. Because we had given it a few days, we were like, I can't stop thinking about that idea, that Sherlock idea that we had about like the the dumb neighbors. And so (laughs) that eventually turned into, well, maybe this is more, maybe this is a series, maybe we can live with these characters more. I'm much more of a fan of like a hangout vibe anyway in my media. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of the sitcom formula was very appealing to me and i think that sherlock holmes's stories lend themselves to that sort of serialized storytelling and so we wanted to have like those homages to the conan doyle of it all while still trying to tread into some new territory with characters that we hadn't seen yet that we were excited about that were anachronistic enough to speak to a modern audience but also did not feel like we're just putting 2023 Twitter into 1888 you know so it was a fun balance to find and it was fun to inject a little bit of like the dirtbag kind of quality that we like in characters into that universe because I I, it, it lends itself to it and Sherlock mm-hmm. and Watson are part of that lineage
0: mm-hmm. that's been the fun game with season two is yeah. finding out like I know you said it was something that we weren't particularly preoccupied with in like the, the original iteration, but I think it's always a fun thing to find out, okay, well, what is not just, what is the objective Sherlock Holmes correct voice, but what is the Sherlock Holmes that exists in our world? It's been a fun puzzle to kind of figure out.
2: And um, on, a, on a larger scale, kind of even like away from our project and just kind of a speaking galaxy brain here, <laughs> I think that that's what's really <laughs> exciting about when things do get multiple adaptations or do go into the public eye yeah. Like, I think we're kind of seeing it right now. I, I kind of hate myself for saying this, but we're seeing it right now with Spider-Man in like a very mm-hmm. real way. That mm-hmm. it's like in the last 20 years, we have had four different major iterations of Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Three of them playing the same character. And one of them playing Miles Morales, obviously. But it's getting to the point, and James Bond is this way too. I feel like there like,
0: are more than four in Across the
2: Spider-Verse, but sure. <laughs> sure, sure. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that we followed a full film of, excuse me. <laughs> but it's getting to the point the really exciting point where there now is no longer a correct way to do it and now it's just interpretation and it's like we have for some weird reason hit on this alchemy that lends itself to so many different types of people so many different types of cultures so many different types of experience and and now it's kind of it feels a little bit like they're putting it in their hands and handing it out to an audience and just being like and now it's your turn do you want to play with this doll and, and if you were to play with it, how would it look and how would they sound mm-hmm. and what would they look like? And
0: Well, especially with and- a character like this where so many different people have so many different interpretations of what he can be, should be, is. Yeah. And it's very personal to a lot of people, uh, you know, this character where there's so many different potential identities for this person and so many different things for him to be. And there's no way for for one version of it to contain all of those things. Yeah. So it's really just what is, what is the version that exists in this piece of art, in this piece of fan fiction this piece of of headcanon and i think all of that is beautiful and is a fantastic part of it hitting the public domain but it's just suddenly this explosion of of he is everything and and like can be and there's a million of him out there and i and i also have like loved so many different adaptations that have done so many different things with that character, which I think is what the beauty is: is that I'm like, no version of Holmes is like this is the objective, correct Holmes, and that's the version we're doing in our show. Mm-hmm. Like, I love Jeremy Brett's Holmes. I I really love Robert Downey Jr.'s Holmes, and there's audio Holmeses that I love. I love vast swaths of the Benedict Cumberbatch Holmes, like, and they all are different versions of the character doing different things, and they are different people, and so many different Watsons, and none of them feels like. In other versions, I think, like, of characters, it's like, that's the correct one, and there's no other one. They all feel like Holmes, and they can be, and I think that's what's lovely about this character, is that he can contain multitudes.
1: I now went across the Sherlock-verse. I'm ready for that. Yes. <laughs> oh my Me God. too. We
0: are ready. Yeah, bring,
1: bring it like on. we like, that. I just want to see Benedict, like, interact with so
2: many of the different <laughs> ones. It <laughs> would be... Unbearable. Like, oh. No, I be, want,
0: no, yeah. what I want is that I want the across the Watson verse, and I would love for David Burke from the Granada Holmes to punch Martin Freeman's John Watson in the face because that's what I firmly believe would happen if they ever met. There's yeah. certain Watsons where I'm like, my Watson would punch that Watson in the face.
2: It's when you know you're in a sweet spot with an IP, is when there are enough different interpretations that you could ostensibly do a draft. Yeah. You could do a Sherlock Holmes draft of like, who's your Watson? Who's your Sherlock? Mm-hmm. Who's your Moriarty? Which adaptation of a story would you, is your favorite? And you can create a mm-hmm. roster yeah. of just like, that's what my, like my ideal is like, Jeremy Brett is Holmes, but Martin Freeman is Watson. And then, mm-hmm. like, you know, the J- Jared Harris is Moriarty. I will say
1: we are uh, possibly in the future putting the Sherlocks together in a simulator of a very famous drag competition.
2: So I'm looking yes. forward to that. <laughs> My yes. gosh, lip solve for your life.
1: <laughs> when you were talking about like David Burke punching Martin Freeman, I'm like, and then Nigel Bruce is just over in the corner bumbling. Like, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs>
0: I'm like, there are there is no incorrect Sherlock Holmes. There are very incorrect to John Watson's and I have very strong feelings about him because yeah. I. Love John Watson more than words could possibly say. He's my favorite. He's my best friend. I love him so much.
2: And then my boy Jude Laws at Burberry getting a suit tailored for him.
0: (laughs) I actually love Jude. I love Jude Laws Watson.
3: It is funny how, like, doing this podcast, how much I did not expect to be, like, really invested in in John Watson. I was like, oh, we're talking about Sherlock Holmes, the famous detective. We'll have a lot of different versions of who that character is. And, like, the more we've gone on, I've been like... Watson is always interesting. Like what Watson is doing is always interesting because yeah. because it's always so different, and because like no one knows what to do with him. I want to jump back to writing for a second. The writing of this show, and specifically about the challenge of writing mysteries, and wanting to make sure that they like made sense.
2: Lauren, who is a much better plot minded creator than I am, don't hype me uh, too much. but it was your idea like initially I was like well obviously they're going to solve the mystery but I as a writer was not as interested in the mystery as I was the characters and how we could make these characters sing and Lauren rightfully so pointed out you can do that by making a mystery that's actually compelling for them to follow
0: it's an interesting thing to have a a writing partnership the way that, that Ian and I do because I think we do have different sensibilities that that can conflict quite a bit as any you know creatives can, but I actually think in this particular project complement themselves pretty well. Because what's interesting about audio, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past, Ian and I a lot when we were writing for this, is that people are engaging with the show in all different contexts of their day. You know, it's not necessarily a movie where you're going and you're sitting down in a theater in a dark room and giving all of your attention to it. Some people are going to do that. Some people are going to you know, do this on when they're when they're on the train and they're going to listen on really nice headphones and they're going to completely lock into the story. And those people are going to want to engage with an overarching story. They're going to be listening for clues. And we want to reward those people by making sure that they have something to follow, that they can play along. Because I also think that is an essential part of a mystery is that the audience should be able to play along with the characters and have all of the pieces required. That's one of the most satisfying things about Sherlock Holmes is is in the really good stories. You are given all of the clues to solve it alongside Sherlock Holmes, but you can't quite put them together the way that he can. And that's what's so satisfying is you have that moment of like, oh, I was so close, like I could have done it. And so we want to reward those listeners who are giving their full attention. But then also there are people who are going to come to the show while they're doing dishes or they're doing laundry or they're driving to work rather than being on a train where they have to more actively split their attention. And so for those people, we want to make sure that we have signposts so that they can follow all of the, the major plot developments. We also just want to up the joke ratio so that anytime they tune in, they're hearing a joke or they're hearing a bit or they're hearing a great character moment so that we're rewarding people who are there for the hangout vibe that Ian is talking about, which is something that he feels very important about. And also we want to reward people who want to re-listen because that's some of also the fun parts of mysteries is going back and hearing all the clues that you missed. So we wanted to kind of create an experience that rewards all different modes of listening and engaging with the material. That if you're here for the characters and you're here for their relationships and you're here for just the comedy, you have jokes pretty regularly. And if you're here for the mystery as well, you also have, you know clues pretty regularly. I read a lot of books about writing mystery. There's like literally a book called How to Write a Mystery. That's like the Mystery Writers Association of America. And it's all different types of writers talking about writing teams, solo writers, people who are writing amateur detectives, people who are writing professional detectives, people who are writing all different types of genres of mystery, of modes of mystery, all different types of delivery of the medium. And I think one of the things that they said is that you kind of have to decide, how do I put this? So you basically, you create the mystery and you create the solution for the mystery. And everything in between is just throwing roadblocks or distractions between the two. It's just sending side tangents and it's just tricks. It's just a bag of tricks. And Mm. some of those tricks are visual medium. I think it's really interesting in the, the Knives Out and Glass Onion movies is that you can hide a lot of stuff in a visual frame if you just direct focus somewhere else. We don't have the ability to do that in an audio medium. So the tricks that we do have at our disposal is one, you can't see people, which gives you an extra trick um, and can allow a lot of like we have a character who shows up and you don't see them, but you hear their voice. And so you are given only a select amount of the information. What I also think is great is that the pairing of mystery and comedy goes really well because you can hide so much information in a joke. It's about giving people information, but hiding why you're giving them the information. It's getting a suspect in there, but hiding them with having them have another reason to be there for the plot. It's just different forms of obfuscation. It's, you know, this character isn't here to be a suspect or this information isn't here. We're just bringing this up as a joke. And then you have that information. I think it's really tricky in an audio medium because you have to signpost clues very purposefully, which can make it seem too obvious but also you get to hide a lot of information in in interesting ways that people who are trained for a visual medium won't pick up on, Mm. which is something we're playing with a lot in season two. Season one was a lot more about the characters and having the mystery be a reflection of the character journeys. I I don't want to like get into any spoilers, but sometimes it's like a story is about the detective in that it is about the mystery and it's just about the vehicle for solving the mystery. And sometimes the mystery is there to be a reflection of the detective's journey, which it very much is for us. And mm-hmm. so it's what is that character journey and what can developments of the mystery do to propel that journey? And that was something we were much more interested in, which is why I think Ian and I like work really well together because he's always focused on character and I'm more focused on like skeleton plot, like moving things along. And then the the tricks can be different and silly and whatever. And Ian's very good at the tricks, and I'm Pretty good at the skeleton.
3: I think you're selling yourself a little short, though, because I think that beyond just just obfuscations, you're learning new things about the case that don't totally give it away over mm-hmm. the course of the season as well. Like I think that mm-hmm. that slow metering out of information is is a huge talent that that I am always yeah. impressed mm-hmm. by when it's done well. And I think you always notice in a mystery when it's done really poorly or where it, when it's not done, when mm-hmm. just like they mm-hmm. butts around for an hour and then they go and this is the solution. <laughs> oh yeah, you definitely notice when yeah. it's mm-hmm. done poorly. Yeah. And so, I, I, <laughs> I, just want to, I want to give kudos that I don't think you guys did it poorly. I think it feels Thank like information came out.
0: I think a lot of that just comes in the edit pass because, like, it's it's really a lot of just like, cool. What's the journey? What's the place we're driving towards? And then, weirdly, a lot of it we're running into this in season two because we're getting to the end of season two
1: mm-hmm. of
0: writing, and now that we've driven to the end, it's a lot of times where we're talking about like, cool. What what tracks do we have to go back and lay down? Yeah. So I have a document that's like, cool, we need to put this clue into this. This is where it's going to go. This will pay off this later on. So it's really just kind of the first pass is just you got to drive the drafts to the end, figure out where you're going, figuring out what information these characters need to put it together. And then going back and making sure that those are all in the right places, okay. which can feel a bit like ticking boxes. But I think it's it's a fun little challenge to give yourself of like, cool, how do we go back and lay this track and how do we hide it? And there's also like mysteries in season two that kind of manifest in different ways. There's kind of a big murder mystery thing that we were doing in season two. Also, there's a secondary mystery that kind of like comes in stealthily that I'm very excited about and that I think is actually the thing that we're setting a lot of groundwork for in the first half that was kind of the focus of this first pass. And now we're like, oh, crap, that's right. We have to do the murder, too. Uh, <laughs> that's, been, that's been a fun thing. It was like, oh, that's right, the murder. Yeah, you should do that. Who does
1: the editing for yours?
0: It's a multiple pass. I do what's called the dialogue edit. Mm. So basically going in, listening to all of the raw audio, compiling it, choosing the takes, sometimes multiple takes, like sometimes you'll stitch together one half of a sentence here, one half of another, putting them together adjusting timing because we're a comedy. So what's cool about audio is that you don't have to worry about like a visual cut. So doing a lot of splicing in that regard, micromanaging the crap out of timing in comedy, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. And sometimes like combining takes there's a bit in, I think episode nine where Hampton Fox is doing, he gets caught doing something and he does like a laugh, I think is it. And he, we took and, and just like, it goes on for too long And Jeremy did three takes of it. And I think we put all three takes back to back (laughs) just to do, just to make it excessively long because he gave us so many options. And I was like, let me just try. And then also in the room, because we're a comedy, a lot of our actors are really good at improvisation and also have a lot of ownership over the characters. We always like to cater our characters and our writing around the actors that we select. That's why we cast people so early. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they've come in, they've talked about the characters a lot with us. They've been a part of a lot of preliminary readings. So a lot of times they'll come in and they'll say like, this doesn't feel right in my mouth. Like when I say it, is there a different way of saying it? So we have what's called like alternate takes. And also where Ian and I realize like that line, that joke is not hitting as hard as it can. Can we try this instead? So after we've done like the main take where people are interacting with each other, we'll go back and say that line wasn't necessarily working or, oh, I have a different idea for that. Having heard you do this, can we try this?
2: We, we do that in the early stages a lot too, with kind of for sensitivity read purposes as well, because it's like we're doing a comedy in 2023 and we have some prickly characters that will say mm-hmm. a lot of off-color things. And so we always do our best to have an open dialogue with all of the actors and all of the technicians that we're working with of essentially being like if anything hits your ear wrong if anything starts to kind of like make you feel uncomfortable please let us know individually because you know we always say this to them it's like you're you're more important to us than a joke mm-hmm. so while we we do really really painstakingly work with the script and we're constantly writing and rewriting and rereading things we also do try to keep it loose enough to where the actors have that agency if they if they mm-hmm. feel the need to change and I find that to kind of tie this back to Sherlock Holmes a little bit, when there are so many iterations of something, Shakespeare's the same way, actually, when there are so many different interpretations and iterations of something, we don't need to be as precious about any one particular. And so it, it actually gives it for me as a creator, a sense of freedom. To be able to, you know, not get married to any of the lines that we've written or not get married to any of the plot points necessarily because we want to create a strong enough and clear enough body to be able to bring it in, but also something that people can make malleable and change and move around.
0: I also definitely want to mention that we have, once I've done the dialogue editing... I send that off to our sound designer, whose name is Sarah Baczynski, who works at a place called Polarity Audio Works. She is amazing. She does all of the creating all of the soundscapes, all of the sound effects, all of the mastering, like adding in the music, all of the stuff that makes it sound as good as it is beyond just literally the voices of the human beings that are doing it. She records custom fully. So like there's a section in a bathtub later on in the series where she actually filled up her own bathtub, went in with a field mic and like created all of that based on the blocking for the scene. So like we had the, the blocking kind of written in the script, even though it's an audio script, we have the blocking written. We have when like character leans forward, grabs hands. She actually got in there and, and did it herself. Like didn't just find a, like a sound library actually created them herself. There's a, there's a section in, I think episode, three where characters are cooking dinner and she actually went in there and like cooked a piece of fish and got splattered <laughs> with grease at one point. And I was like, no, I'm so sorry, Sarah. She really goes the extra mile to make this sound like a lived in world. She is fantastic. We're so lucky to have her. And then she's why the show sounds as, as great as it does. We also have a, a composer named Valdemar who does all of our original music. So we are we are an entire team. So I want to all say this all like, while I am the one that's choosing the takes, I'm doing the, like, you know, what you think of in film as editing, she is the one that is making it sound like a world. And we would be lost without her. That's incredible. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, she is fantastic.
3: Mm-hmm. I want to ask about how the writing is influenced by the existing canon. Your mm-hmm. mystery in the first season starts in a very, like, classic Doyle place and then goes to a lot of places that are less classically mm-hmm. Doyle. Are, are you influenced by specific mysteries in the canon, or are you... More interested in making up new things. First
0: season, yeah. We specifically set the first season in a specific point of the canon. So pretty quickly, it was a, a section where they're out, where they're away. So that was how to the Baskervilles because we very purposefully wanted them out of the, the frame so that our characters could take center stage. We wanted them gone. We (laughs) wanted them out of here. They've Um, had
3: enough time.
0: And and also wanted to start the story in a very Doyle place. We wanted to start it with a character coming in, sitting down, they're a client, and our characters trying to engage with the mystery in the exact way that Holmes would. Hmm. So doing everything, using kind of his methods, using his approach, and really trying to imitate him. So a lot of those early episodes are them like trying to go in with disguises and trying to <laughs> interview and prod that way and going to the scene of the crime and kind of going around the back. So it was really a journey from them trying to use all of the tools that, that of success that they have seen work for Holmes and work in the Doyle stories, not really seeing much success in that and finding their own way through. So that was really our engagement with those particular structures and obviously keeping like want all the like Doyle stuff where like all the pieces are there, but letting go of the kind of the formality of structure that is like very methodology based, especially in those early Sherlock Holmes stories. and really letting it get a little more loosey-goosey is it what goes on. Season two has a very different engagement with a moment in the Canon. We have also chosen a very specific moment in the Sherlock Holmes Canon to set the second season. That I don't necessarily want to spoil, but it is a very specific like we've also chosen a very famous moment in the canon Mm. as a jumping off point. One of the things we really like doing in season one was taking a point of view character that is different from our main point of view characters at the halfway point of the season Mm. and kind of going back and showing you everything from their point of view. It's something we really like. It's a trick that you'd see done a lot. In specifically study in Scarlet, where it's like, okay, cool. Now we take the perspective of the murderer and we go back and tell all that story. We did that in season one and we wanted to do that again in season two. And the version of that in season two is taking us through specific moments in the Holmes canon. So we essentially do what is mostly a flashback episode Hmm. at the halfway point of the season that is different signposts in the Sherlock Holmes canon. And sort of, in less a mystery way and more of a personal way, trying to recontextualize certain moments of the canon in what Watson specifically is willing to share with the public and in the stories versus what may have actually happened. So our engagement with the canon in the second one is less about like the methodology of the stories and more about the whole story of season two is a lot more about how do you tell your own story. And how does telling the story of someone else, what are the responsibilities of that? And in what you share to the public and what you share to the world? And is telling someone's story a form of love? And is it still a form of love if you're leaving certain things out? Because I think that's one of the fascinating things about the stories is that there are so many times that they stop the stories for Holmes to whine about the, like, you're not portraying me right. You're romanticizing or you're leaving things out. And Watson getting genuinely, understandably very frustrated because he's writing about this person and he's given a decent portion of his life to writing about this person. And what does that do to our relationship? And that's something we were really interested with in season two. And and I'll pass this over to Ian because I've been talking for a while.
2: I feel like you covered everything. <laughs> um, no, yeah. I mean, like we, again, we read a lot of them and we familiarized ourselves with a lot of the stories in the canon. I don't want to give too many specifics Just know that if you are a big fan of the canon of Sherlock Holmes and you are familiar with a lot of those details on a lot of those titles, (laughs) I think that you're going to have a really good time.
0: I just talked about all the serious stuff and Ian's like, there's a lot of inside jokes in season two. And he's right. There are a lot of inside jokes in season two.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, and that kind of goes back a little bit. This will be my last little point here. But like, it goes back to what Lauren was saying, where it's like, we're trying to write a show that satisfies the hardcore Sherlock Holmes fan that obsesses over these stories because they are worthy of being obsessed over they're so good and we also want to write something that if you've never seen or read yeah. any, or engaged with any Conan Doyle that you're still gonna leave like happy and understanding yeah uh, and, and you're gonna like the characters so that's a fun balance to try and find and sometimes that manifests itself in like a very bold, like, you know, light up Vegas signpost of like, here's a reference. <laughs> and sometimes it's a little bit more implicit and and a little bit more like, you know, we're not going to necessarily give you directions on it. But if somebody wants to be like, oh my gosh, that's the same way that Sherlock and Watson deduced this in this story, mm-hmm. then, you know, it's like, yeah, it is. And, you know, if you got yeah. that, great. If you didn't, all good. You still got the story. In my opinion, it's like, that's a way that we're not alienating Mm -hmm. anyone in the audience and we're able to kind of hopefully Mm -hmm. be something that that the the seasoned fan could listen to and also the person who's entering this world for the first time
0: yeah i think season one was a lot about our characters reckoning with the ways in which they are different from sherlock holmes and that's okay season two is i think about these groups realizing that they have more in common than i think they may have thought and what they can gain from that and so I think that reflects in, in the form and the tone.
3: I think that's a terrific place to leave it. I had so much fun listening to the first season. I think it's a terrific show, whether you're a fan of Sherlock Thank Holmes you. or not. When is the second season dropping?
2: Our goal yeah. is to hopefully have new episodes for listeners by the fall. It's a lot a lot of work and a lot of time between now and That's then. That's our
0: but realistic goal that we're setting for ourselves. If we're earlier than that, that'd be great. But <laughs> we're trying to be more realistic about our expectations and our work-life balance and all of that.
2: And we're very excited. All of that is to say, like, it sounds like we've toiled a lot and we have, but we're so excited <laughs> because the idea is, I, I'm so excited for season two. I really, really think it's going to be something very special.
0: And you've already met Holmes and Watson, but we really want you to, we can't wait for you to beat them again. I'm, I'm so excited to get to play in that sandbox. As much as I'm like, our characters are like, yay. I'm like, I also want to do this. I also, oh, boohoo. I have to write Holmes and Watson.
2: Oh no. (laughs) Oh no. I have to play with my favorite toys. So brilliant (laughs) and so stupid. Both of them. (laughs) I love them so much.
3: But do you guys have anything to promote besides Fox and Sally? You guys have other projects as well?
0: We wrote an episode for another amazing podcast called The Amelia Project that will be coming out. It is an audio drama. It's fantastic. I love it so much. That is about an agency that basically disappears people. And it gets increasingly absurd as the seasons go on. Very metatextual, very silly. And then now they're doing a season where they're going through the entire history of the agency going backwards in time through various historical figures. So they have, in a very cool way, they've reached out to a bunch of creators in the community and gone, like, choose a famous historical figure and what their story is. So we're very excited that we got to do an episode of that that is about a certain Shakespearean figure that we won't spoil. They also did a Sherlock Holmes episode that is very cool. We love it a lot. They're incredibly cool people. I also was the assistant director for the fifth and final season of, a, of an audio drama called Unwell, which is based in Chicago which is a multiple award-winning podcast that I highly recommend, especially if you're interested in complex lives of queer characters and specifically a Midwestern gothic sense. The sound design is also some of the best in the entire industry. And I I voice act on a few shows. I voice act on a show called Two Flat Earthers Kidnap a Freemason, which is another absurdist <laughs> comedy. So funny. I also voice act on a fantastic show called Midnight Burger, which is basically if the TARDIS from Doctor Who was a diner. That travels throughout the world. So I also got to do one of their mini series. They're fantastic people. We had a crossover with the show called Where the Stars Fell, which is sort of another like Appalachian queer biblical retelling about the Antichrist and a guardian angel. And it's very similar. If you like things like Good Omens, I think you would really, really like that. Yeah. (laughs) But that's a little bit of of what we've been, been. Yeah. And I'm also on that vampire show, which I'm recording season two of.
2: Which is also great. So busy, it's crazy. <laughs> this is why this show has taken so long to write because I, I can't get her time at all. I haven't seen her for weeks.
0: <laughs> but, but yeah, that vampire show is it is a a story about fandom and fan fiction. You know, it's a very behind the scenes into creating one of those like type of CW shows and the way that those shows engage with their fandom, kind of adversarially, but also it's this weird codependence. And so it's a it's a really interesting view at. at the, both the creator side and the fan side of that particular parasocial relationship. Yeah, so it's I've gotten to do a lot of really, really cool projects.
3: That's so yeah. cool. Well, uh, thank you both for joining us. This has been delightful. Yes. Next week, we'll be joined by Lauren again to talk about BBC Sherlock, finally. I know that both of us can go on a 20-minute rant about it without any guidance, so this should be fun. <laughs> <laughs> We've been your bakery regulars. And we'll see you next time.
0: The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.
2: This is I reporting. He's at the Lao Chang restaurant,
0: Changchun, northeastern China. It's uh, spring 1997. Once it started, I'll leave him in Ming's hands.
1: <laughs> That's a joke. Ming doesn't have hands.
3: And what do you do exactly? besides dance with strangers.
0: I work for the postal service.
3: <laughs> you you're a
1: a postman.
2: We're right. We're right. Ms. What is it?
1: It's just a bit strange. A letter for me from Hong Kong. And there's no stamp. I need stamps to
3: write a dead person.
0: Yep, there's a cost. How much? A pound. A pound of flesh a pound of you it seems like
3: a lot
1: lift up your shirt what's that just hold this tube over your stomach we are done now Ow! yeah this is going to hurt
2: what
1: nothing
2: a you
1: the very worst thing that could possibly happen.
3: Sara, please write back. If your letter can find me here, then I think we have a lot to talk about. Saludos. Raul. The very worst thing that could possibly happen. An audio drama in nine parts. Produced by Wolf at the Door Studios. Out now. For more information, please visit WLFDR.com.